0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 6th, 2018. Hope everyone had a good 4th of July. I'm Brian Cardell and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Consumer advocates and the consumer financial services industry await with interest an impending decision from the California Supreme Court in the case of De La Torre v. Cash Call. The case will settle whether interest rates on unsecured consumer loans can reach some upper limit, past which the loan is deemed unenforceable based on the unconscionability doctrine. The specific loans, challenged by a class here, were in the amount of $2,600 and carried interest rates of 96 to 135%. At the federal district court level, Cash Call moved for summary judgment, citing a California statutory scheme which sets specific interest rate limits on loans less than $2,500 but prescribes that such limits do not apply to loans above that amount, the court granted Cash Call's motion, reasoning that it setting a limit past which interest rates became unconscionable seemed more like a legislative policymaking function rather than a judicial one. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit certified the question to the California Supreme Court, asking for the latter's guidance on how the state's laws bear on the question of whether and when interest rates can become too high. The plaintiff's central argument is that standard statutory construction and certain legislative history recommend the court impose interest rate limits of some sort based on the unconscionability doctrine. The plaintiffs also argue doing so would serve worthwhile policy ends as high interest unsecured loans tend to attract more vulnerable consumers who might not be clear on a loan repayment terms. On Cash Call's side, the company contends California statute expressly exempting these loans from an interest rate cap answers the question at issue here in their favor. Cash Call also contends that the market can ably police excessively high interest rates and that a specific cap placed on loan interest rates would hamper both lenders and Borrowers who need their services. Today, we'll hear both these competing views. We'll be joined first by Stephen Tyndall and Andre Mura of Gerard Gibbs LLP, who represent the plaintiffs in this case. We'll then hear from Catherine Brennan from Hudson Cook LLP. She's not affiliated with the parties here, but in her practice, represents and advises clients providing the sorts of financial services and issue here. Before hearing from our guests, though, two quick reminders: don't forget that you can listen to the weekly appellate report on iTunes now. Just find us via your podcast app by searching Weekly Appellate Report. Your your clicks, subscriptions, rates, uh, and reviews are, are certainly appreciated there. Also available on SoundCloud and via our website, dailyjournal.com. And also, don't forget that CLE Credit is available for listeners of the podcast. You can find it by taking a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further ado, then, let's welcome in our first two guests, ready to put forward the case as to why the unconscionability doctrine should render certain high interest rates on unsecured consumer loans unenforceable. We have Stephen Tindall from Gerard Gibbs. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. And also Andre Moura. Andre, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So thanks again, gentlemen, for both being here from the Gibbs Law Group in, in Oakland, California, and have been representing the original plaintiffs in this matter. Before we get into who the plaintiffs are and and the facts over which they they brought suit. I think it'd be helpful to to set a bit of the statutory context in which this action takes place to inform our discussion about those facts. So there are a couple of sections of the California Finance Code that are being discussed that are at the the center of this case and the ways in which they, they might work in tandem or interact or potentially conflict is sort of up for debate. As I understand that those two sections were enacted in the mid-1980s when there was some change made to uh, by the legislature as to the level uh, of interest rates that could be imposed on, on unsecured consumer loans. Tell me uh, specifically which, uh, about those two sections, or section 22302 and, and 22303 of the Cal Finance Code. Uh, tell me kind of their origin and, and what they provide for. Uh, Steve, if you wouldn't mind starting
2: so um California financial code two two three oh three lays out uh, percentage um, interest rates percentages that can be charged to loan to consumer loans of twenty five hundred dollars or less and it's it's um, sort of graduated like certain dollar amount is a certain percentage and then the next higher dollar amount is another percentage on up to twenty five hundred dollars and um 22302 specifies that um, the unconscionability uh, provision of the California Civil Code applies to loans that are part of the, uh, or the loans that are made under this, I, think, believe, I believe they say this division, but it's under the financial code. And um, it specifies that uh, that unconscionability analysis applies to all such loans.
0: Okay. Just to put a slightly finer point on it, you could say that Section 22303 provides that there's no statutory limit for the interest rates that a a company could charge for a loan given over the the amount of $2,500. And um, of importance, sort of more or less depending on which side of the case you're on, is the situation that existed prior to, to that enactment of that law, that it was a change whereas previously loans of that amount over 2500 and I believe up to 5000 were subject to a certain limit. And then after the statutory enactment, the interest rate cap only applied to, to those below 2500 So that was a, a change. Uh, is that f- uh, fair to say, Andre? Uh,
1: yes. At the time in 1985, um, the statutory framework authorized certain interest rates on loans of $5,000 or less and the legislature was contemplating lowering that monetary threshold to $2,500 and the Attorney General um, was concerned and expressed a concern at the time that the legislation was being considered that uh, consumers would not be adequately protected and the response was that uh, consumers will also be protected by the unconscionability doctrine, and at the same time that 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 monetary threshold was lowered from five thousand dollars to two thousand five hundred dollars, the legislature also added uh, Section two two three o two to expressly incorporate unconscionability into the financial lenders law, and to make a uh, a violation of that unconscionability doctrine a violation of the financial lender lenders law subject to uh, certain remedies available there um, under that uh, statute, and that's uh, California
2: Civil Code Section 1670.5, which was incorporated.
0: It, it occurs to me that it might be useful just just briefly. Folks are certainly familiar with the doctrine of unconscionability, but in that statutory section, I guess, or maybe more more generally, what how how is the doctrine defined? as basically proscribes. Certain contracts made, where a variety of factors kind of weighed in the totality of the circumstances, make it so either substantially or procedurally, the such an agreement is just not something that should be enforced. Uh, is that a fair way to describe it?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, unconscionability doctrine is sort of uh, a doctrine that has deep roots in the in the common law and been essentially a a defense against uh, the enforcement of a contract where a provision or multiple pre- provisions of a contract are determined to be unconscionable which is framed under various tests and formulations but it could be that a provision uh, is uh, deeply unfair or shocks the conscience and courts have uh, different language to describe sort of what the threshold is for unconscionability.
0: Okay, then we, we go ahead and get into the case at issue and dig into to, to the facts a little bit in the procedure that got this case to where it is before the California Supreme Court originally. It was was brought in federal court. So probably not coincidentally, the loans at issue here being provided by Cash Call are just above that Section 22303 threshold. They're $2,600 loans. And the interest on those loans uh, applied by the company, I think, it was either 96% or 135%. So over a period... Over the prescribed repayment period here of three or four years, uh, tended to result in repayments that would be, you know, three or four times the amount, um, given the $2,600 amount. And so that fact, these high in, uh, interest rates were the center of this case. I guess, um, Steve, if you could walk me through any other pertinent facts that you think are, are relevant here, and then you know, I guess the the theory of the claim, um, what, what what its, its basis was.
2: Sure, and and I think you you touched on it, and and part of the reason that this um, that these loans are as I mean we believe um, that that the interest rates are unconscionable is is the combination of the interest rate plus the loan term. The you know the the podcast listeners may be familiar with sort of pay, payday loans or sort of auto title loans or. Um, sort of very short-term, very high-interest loans mm-hmm. that, you know, a payday loan, and it's, those are regulated by a different statute, so, so they're not, you know, fully at issue here. But just by way of comparison, they can have very high interest rates, but the loans are only for about, you know, two weeks or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Here, as you note, the loans at issue are 96% loans, 135% loans, um, but they go on for either 35 months or 42 months. So that by the end of the first year of making repayments, if all they repaid was uh, interest at the 135% um, rate, at the end of that year, they actually will owe more than they owed at the, be- the beginning of the year. And so, and the other, the other piece of it was, and, and this uh, was developed and evidence in the lower court, that People would call Cash Call and say, "I need a thousand dollar loan." And Cash Call would say, "Well, I, 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 we don't have a thousand dollar loan product, but if you'd like, we can give you twenty six hundred dollars." And so they would sort of um, guide them into these twenty six hundred dollar loans, in which they, you know, would have these the interest rates that they have and the, you know, this is also in that in the evidence before the court, the default rate of these loans was as high as 45. I think it went from 30 to 45% during the class period. So that 45% of the loans ended up, they ended up defaulting on them.
0: Had those loans been a couple hundred dollars less, say $2,400 underneath the, the statutory threshold? Do you know what the, like, cap on interest rates w- would have been for loans of that type, pretty similar in, in amount, uh, Steve or Andre?
2: Yeah, Andre can correct me if I'm wrong. It's either, I, th- I think it's it, it's effectively either 24% or 38%. Andre, do you remember?
1: I don't recall the exact number. Okay.
2: It's under 40%. And It's either 24% or 28% or 38%.
0: I believe that the suit is brought as a putative class action in, in, in federal district court. The district court does grant summary judgment to cash call, and we'll get a little bit more into the district court's worry on this point today. uh As the Ninth Circuit described it, it seemed to be based on the court's worry that potentially be a court making economic policy almost if it were to set some sort of limit on interest rates that it deemed un, unconscionable. Is that largely how the summary judgment was granted, Andre, if you know?
2: Um, and and actually, uh, this is Steve. I'd like to, to back up a minute, which was, and, and this is something, um, Brian, you may have gone into in more detail, which was when they first moved for summary judgment and the plaintiffs opposed it, the judge initially issued a, I believe it was a 48-page order denying summary judgment, mm-hmm. and it was a very detail-specific detail, um, order in which uh, the court laid out all the various material issues of fact that were, not, that were in dispute. And once that order was issued and, and summary judgment was denied, uh, Cash Call uh, moved for reconsideration of the order and uh, noted that the court had not addressed one part of its argument which was a sort of separation of powers argument. And this is what what you were getting to, Brian, that that the um, that the court does not have the power to um, make these determinations, that this is um, you know the sort of interest rate determinations are are left to the legislature, and the court should not weigh in on on these issues. And we opposed that you know motion for reconsideration, but the district court ultimately um, granted the motion for summary judgment based on that.
0: And then on on appeal, the ninth circuit asked the, the California Supreme Court to take a look at the question, obviously, one involving some, some state statutes and an interpretation of them. So the, the California Supreme Court is, is doing that now, maybe just to, to clarify the, the question that they are dealing with and, and the one that they're, they're not. So as I understand it, the question kicked over to the high court is just whether there is some potential ceiling above which interest rates on loans over $2,500 could become unconscionable and not specifically whether the loans at issue here themselves are unconscionable. Andres, is is that the the right way to frame the question?
1: Well, I think the question is more whether the unconscionability doctrine under the incorporated as part of the financial lender's law is going to apply to loans um, including the interest rate that is uh, the interest that's charged on the loan. Cash position has been that uh, the legislature has essentially carved out the interest rate so that it can charge uh, whatever it wants on, in interest on loans of $2,500 or more and that the interest rate itself can't be part of any consideration as to whether the loan terms are unconscionable. So what the court has been asked is essentially a, a question of law. Um, it's answered that question whether the unconscionability doctrine applies here is going to um, then decide the matter that's been uh, asked by the Ninth Circuit and then the case will go back to the Ninth Circuit for uh, development of whether uh, these specific loans are actually unconscionable under... Or if the, nine, if the California Supreme Court holds that the unconscionability doctrine doesn't extend here, then that will obviously sort of uh, move things faster in the, in the federal courts when the case is remanded back. But it all depends on the scope of the... The court's ruling and and whether it thinks that the unconscionability doctrine applies here or whether it applies to uh, other provisions of the loan but not interest rate and so it's it's not clear exactly uh, what the scope of the court's ruling will be but it is deciding um, a pure legal question and it's not necessarily deciding in uh, whether these loans are in fact unconscionable.
0: Great. Then we can move to. The, the principal arguments advanced in in your briefs and and an argument uh, it's a case of statutory interpretation so we'll, we'll begin with uh, some textual uh, analysis and the textual argument that you've presented um, Steve can you begin with with that argument just the the ways in which reading the statute on their faces the two statutes the two sections in in your view indicate clearly that the unconscionability doctrine could bear on Interest rates of loans over twenty five hundred dollars.
2: Certainly, and and um, I'll I'll sort of do broader strokes, and and Andre can drill down. Actually, I'm mixing my metaphors there. Um, can can uh, fill in the details a little bit more. But our reading and sort of the the argue that the issue that was argued between the parties in the briefs um, had a lot to do with whether the two provisions. Um, are in conflict or not, or whether they can be read, you know, harmoniously. Mm-hmm. And our, our position throughout has been that they're not in conflict, that the um, 22302, which says that the loans, you know, the loans can't be unconscionable, you know, applies to all loans, and that um, 22303 uh, is, you know, sort of identifies specified rate caps for certain loans but says nothing about um, whether uh, interest rates that on loans that are not within that statute can be challenged as unconscionable. So there's nothing in it that that you know forbids certainly a court from taking into account interest rates um, in loans that aren't you know covered specifically by the um, the dollar limits of
0: 22303. Andrew, do you have anything to, to add to? the textual argument? Uh,
1: sure. I mean, I think Cash Call's main argument is that when you look at these two provisions, they're in conflict and that the provision addressing the interest rate caps are more specific than the general unconscionability provision, and so uh, the one should override the other. But if you look at the uh, California Supreme Court precedent on statutory interpretation, it, it describes it, it sort of places the responsibility on courts to read statutes um, so it gives effect to both where it can and tries to interpret statutes, um, two statutes harmoniously. And it's only when there isn't a rational basis for, for harmonizing two potentially conflicting statutes, which essentially means that the statutes are irreconcilable or clearly repugnant, that uh, the court will come to the conclusion that one statutory provision sort of overrides or displaces the other. And here, that's that's a very hard, I think, lift for cash call because if you just look at the two statutes together, they clearly can be read harmoniously to give effect to both. I mean, the, the statutory 22303, which authorizes interest on certain loans, that can certainly have effect. And to the extent that uh, a lender wants to charge um, certain interest on loans above $2,500, it certainly can. And then there's the question under 22302 whether particular loan terms are unconscionable. That applies to all loans under the financial lender's law, and it, pro- and it by its terms under 22302, it applies to all provisions of a loan. So reading those two together, you certainly can have... Um, specific interest rates for certain loans, and you could also have the unconscionability doctrine apply. And those are sort of two ways to think about um, what's permissible, and it, they're not obviously in conflict when you sort of think about them in that way.
0: You know, I, I take it this is the, the first time the California Supreme Court has interpreted the ways in which these, these sections interact, but as you cite in in your briefing, the the as, as persuasive authority, the, the Supreme Court of New Mexico, I think has dealt with a, a pretty similar statutory construction or statutory situation. Is in, how, how did the court there deal with uh, statutes of, of this nature, Steve?
2: So the New Mexico Supreme Court, um, and this is the uh, state x King case, um dealt with a very similar issue, which is that there was a um yeah you know, there was a i think there was a statutory rate cap and the and the the lender at issue was charging more than that and the, the New Mexico supreme Court rejected the idea that the um lender could charge you know whatever it wants and sort of noted that the defendants had tried to make an end run around the consumer protections that were in the, the Loan Act at issue um, and that it wasn't going to allow it, that it was going to enforce um, sort of New Mexico um, sort of public policy against excessive rates and struck down the rates as unconscionable.
0: Um, we, we've touched on it a bit at, at the opening, the the some of the legislative history and purpose behind the enactments of these couple of sections back in 1985. Um, but Andre, could you uh, describe to me exactly how how some of that history comes into play here to, in your view, um, demonstrate that the legislature really did intend for these two sections to work in tandem for the unconscionability doctrine to cover loans, even those over 2,500 that were by that amendment in 1985, you know, free of any specific interest rate cap?
2: Sure. I think Andre touched on that a little bit at the beginning, which was when the interest rate cap of, you know, of 5,000, I mean, the, uh, yeah, the interest rate cap applying to loans 2,500 to 5,000, when that, when the legislature dropped that from 5,000 to 2,500, the attorney general specifically said, this is going to leave open... Consumers um, to some bad conduct, and in response to that, the legislature, you know, adopted two two three hundred two and, and or, or drafted it and put it in the law, and said that you no, know, they will still be protected um, by um, you know the unconscionability
1: provisions of sixteen seventy point five. Under no, that's okay. I was just going to add that um, we think it's significant that the that the legislature adopted. The uh, and incorporated unconscionability doctrine expressly in the financial lender's law at the same time that it was lowering the interest rate cap. Courts will look at legislative history when um, statutory text is unclear. We've said here that the statutory text is clear insofar as it expresses the legislative intent to apply unconscionability doctrine to all provisions of a loan subject to the finance lenders law. But sometimes courts will also look at legislative history if it um, just sort of to cover the bases and to the extent that it reinforces their textual analysis, they might point to the legislative history. And if you look at that legislative history, it strongly suggests that the legislature, as Steve was just describing, uh, intended to provide protections to consumers and not essentially authorize a sky is the limit approach to to interest or to excessive charges. I mean, there's there's an express discussion in the legislative history about um, unconscionability, uh, protecting against excessive charges.
0: Yeah. It- I mean the the way that I, I read your, your briefing, and I don't mean to say that this is the position that you're specifically defending, but it 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 seems to kind of um, give one the notion that you know o- sort of always lurking in the background is a bit of a catch-all provision against unconscionable or you know just excessively um, really problematic arrangements. Uh, that the unconscionability doctrine is, is there, and that perhaps at the time of these enactments, the legislature kind of knew that, but in, 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 in your your briefs, they 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 just want to make uh, you say they the legislature wanted to to clarify that point to make it crystal clear that yes, you know that 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 doctrine still applies here and and so we just want to make sure no one's mistaken about it. Um, is that a, a fair way to describe it? Steve?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But we also think yet are you right that this sort of unconscionability analysis is sort of always there. But it sort of adds. And I think Andre was was touching on this. It's sort of like the, the legislature, by by adopting it, makes clear we're not ignoring that. This is that this all applies. The you know the you can't have unconscionable contracts, and by contracts, loan loan pervi- I mean uh, loan agreements constitute contracts. Andre, you,
0: you mentioned it that the the notion that the Two two three oh three section saying there's no there are no interest rates that are statutorily too high for loans over twenty five hundred dollars. Read it the way Cash Call would like it to be read creates the sort of assumption that the sort of the sky is the limit that there really isn't any interest rate that could be too high a hundred a 1, thousand ten thousand percent as long as it was agreed to by a contracting party uh, is that kind of the natural extent of their argument that there there can't be any limit based on that statutory safe harbor they describe?
1: I, mean, I, be- I believe that um, Cash Call's position. It, it was asked uh, a question about that at oral argument before the California Supreme Court, and it seemed to suggest um, yes, its position is that, if I'm remembering correctly, that its position is that the sky is a limit, but that uh, the court should not be concerned for a variety of reasons that it would be very unlikely for a lender to. Uh, charged sort of exorbitant interest rates, and it sort of gave some reasons or policy reasons why um, the court should not be concerned about uh, extremely high interest rates. But essentially, that, it, that is what, as I understand it, what Cash Call is arguing is that the, the, the legislature has sort of cleaved off the interest rate um, from unconscionability analysis, and it just can't be part of of any uh, court or the um, agency that administers the finance lenders laws, they can't consider the interest rate on such loans uh, as part of the unconscionability analysis. To us, it seems clear that the legislature intended that uh, these provisions, all these provisions uh, would be part of the unconscionability analysis that would be uh, authorized by uh, Section 22302.
2: And, and just to add that, in addition to the, um, what Cash Call said in the California Supreme Court, in the Ninth Circuit argument as well, one of the Ninth Circuit judges asked, so would it be okay to charge 10,000% interest? I, I believe that was the figure. And Cash Call's counsel said yes.
0: I assume that one of the the, the next things that, that counsel might say or reason supporting that line of argument is that um, the The free market will tend to rein in such practices like that. That no one would really pay ten thousand percent, so it doesn't need to be a, a huge worry for for courts. What's your take on that public policy argument that he, you know, the free market can decide that people can contract freely, and if a, a cost is too high, an interest rate is too high, then folks just just won't pay it. Uh, either Steve or Andre, if you want to jump in.
2: Yeah, a couple a couple points on that. I mean, it, I mean, it's the same argument for why there shouldn't be um, minimum wage. Like you know you know we don't need a law saying you should only pay you know you should pay a minimum of you know nine seventy five dollars, dollar nine seventy five an hour because no one's gonna work for a dollar an hour. Well, that's just not I, I don't think there's there's not a problem um, in my mind anyway um, with the legislature and society deciding we want these basic protections of workers, or in this case, borrowers and the, and the basic protection is you know you know it's not a specific rate cap, but we are going to take a look to see whether these loan terms shock the conscience, which is the you know sort of one of the interpretations of, of unconscionability. And so yes, the, the free market is at work but the free market is encumbered in many ways by statutes as a way to protect the most vulnerable consumers and the most most vulnerable uh, employees. Same thing with sort of overtime laws. You know, the same arguments are made, you know, like you shouldn't require overtime payments because, you know, the free market can govern whether employees want to, you know, work 90 hours a week or not. But, society and and the legislature can decide no we we want to support this you know sort of value of uh, if you're if you the business is going to require um, you know this sort of uh, work we're going to make it you know more expensive for you to do
0: if, if every your briefing correctly it, it does seem to, to give um, the general impression that some of these policy considerations and another one put forward by cash call is that you want to have a, a market in which borrowers can, you know, that, that need money are able to get loans. And I, th- I believe the argument is put forward by Cash Call that to maintain their sort of profitability, to be able to stay in business, these are the interest rates they've figured out. Um, their accountants have figured out have need to be charged. Um, but I, I take it from your briefing that because the statutory analysis in your view is pretty clear here, that you don't really need to get too far down the, the road towards those policy arguments that the the, the clear way to resolve the question uh, is to look at the way these sections interact and and see that fairly clearly they can work in tandem. Is that a fair surmise, Steve?
2: Yes, that's that's correct. I mean, uh, the policy argument and, and you know that policy argument can you know it, it. What you said is exactly right, especially in the California Supreme Court. It's a it's a statutory. Analysis, um, and then you know, further down the line, you know, is the sort of well, and it's and it's cash call saying, oh, we won't be able to to do make these loans if if we are you know um, required to charge conscionable interest rates. I mean, there's not in the record a lot of support for that yet, and there's also, I mean, that may come in the a uh, trial court, um, if we are able to get back to the trial court to demonstrate this, is whether, you know, cash call um, would be able to certainly make a profit, and they, they were with lower interest rates as well, and with lower default rates on the on the loans, and, um, you know, that's something that I think a, a, a trial court can can develop in, in analyzing whether these are sort of conscionable, unconscionable uh, loan terms.
1: I was just going to add that I think some of these policy arguments are really sort of uh, beyond the scope of the question before the court because if the court believes that the legislature has already made a determination that unconscionability applies here, then sort of arguments for why unconscionability should not apply are really arguments that should be directed to the legislature.
0: Andre, do you have thoughts on the other, I guess, policy issue, or just the, the separation of powers, consideration or concern that the district court voiced in a summary judgment order, that if, if courts need to, to weigh into this question, it, it would put them in a position where they sort of decide, okay, this far and no further for this particular term of a loan, which sounds a bit like economic policymaking. What are your thoughts on, on that uh, uh, score?
1: I think the attorney general for the state of California had a nice response to that about how, you know, the court's determination of unconscionability is not doing any work that is sort of outside what the judiciary normally does in terms of uh, contract law and unconscionability doctrine is, is very well developed. It's applied regularly in, um, under California law for, you know, quite a long time, it's applied um, often in the context of arbitration. So these are familiar legal, um, principles and their application here is not really, um, so, so new that it should cause the concern that courts are really sort of outside their bailiwick. And,
2: and also this Steve, um, specifically under 1670.5, it specifically says that courts are to decide the unconscionability issue, um, and, and it doesn't say the legislature is to or the executive branch is to. It says courts are to. Um, it, and it's part of uh, the court's sort of uh, directive under 1670.5 to examine uh, contract terms to see if they are unconscionable. So not only, I mean, we believe not only is there not a separation of powers issue, this statute actually, the 1670.5 statute, actually specifies that it is appropriate for courts to to make these determinations.
0: This might be beyond the necessary uh, work that the the California Supreme Court would need to do were to decide that the unconscionability doctrine does apply to these loans of over $2,500, but stipulate that they, they do decide that. In, in this particular context, what What, I guess, would the test look like for figuring out how high of an interest rate is permissible um, and and how high of a rate becomes unconscionable based on the the law here? Um, Either Andre or Steve, feel free to jump in.
2: Um, Well, there's a a few responses to that, and that is a bit sort of beyond the sort of scope, certainly, of the um, California Supreme Court issue. But one point to make is that you know the analysis the court is making is whether these loans are unconscionable or not and it's not certain uh, in my mind that the court will have to say x percent is conscionable and above that you cross the line into unconscionability instead what it's doing is looking at the facts of this case and the loans and you know the effect of these loans, and the combination of the interest rate and the and the um, term of the loan, that that um, results in a determination that it's unconscionable. And it can look to things such as um, sort of other comparable sort of uh, interest you know interest rate caps and statutes as well as um, you know the effects that that these loans have had on um, the class members.
0: Andre. do you have thoughts on how the unconscionability test might work in a context like this?
1: Sure. Some, I mean, some of the factors identified in the briefing are uh, market price, the seller's profit, the disparity between price and value, the borrower's ability to repay. But again, I don't, I agree with Steve that it's not clear that the California Supreme Court will sort of weigh in there or needs to. Um, But, you know, it, it, it might go there, but we're not sure. Um, the New Mexico Supreme Court, I don't remember whether it sort of laid out all of those factors necessarily, but perhaps it did have some discussion of it. Um, but I think because this is on certified question where essentially the Ninth Circuit has, has asked a question of statutory interpretation, the California Supreme Court might uh, sort of limit itself to answering that question without sort of going too far down the road to developing um, sort of exactly what factors should be considered here and sort of allow that development to occur um, at the trial court level uh, back in federal courts where um, that can be developed sort of based on a factual record.
0: Okay, then we could uh, could close here and certainly without asking you to, to forecast how the California Supreme Court might be feeling about the the, the question before it um, Steve do you have thoughts as to which issues that seem to be at the front of the court's mind and argument what things they they might have been the most worried about or, or asked about uh, most most pointedly do you have any thoughts on on that
2: Yeah and just in just from the you know, sort of questioning at the at the hearing itself they seem to be interested in in um, the two statutes um, 22302 and 22303 and how they work together and um, whether—and um, this is something that I think Andre touched on earlier whether the unconscionability um, analysis whether 22303 sort of carves out from that a specific um, you know the analysis of the interest rate or not and whether, you know, how, how do these two statutes read together? That seems to be what, what they were focused on. And that was, you know, essentially the question that was asked to them. And I think that, it, you know, it, it it could be, I mean, I don't, it's hard to read tea leaves, but I think um, they are going to try to answer the question that is before it and um, sort of analyze the, the two statutes and, and, um, you know, sort of give the Ninth Circuit guidance
1: on on how to read those. Uh,
0: Andre, do you have any thoughts on where the court's focusing to be?
1: Um, Well, you know, I think the court's asked uh, very fair questions of both sides, sort of probing um, the strengths and weaknesses of their their positions. And so I'll just leave it at that. I mean, it's very hard to sort of uh, guess uh, just based on an oral argument. I mean, the court seemed to be very prepared as, as it typically is, um, with a good understanding of sort of the history of the statutory framework and accountability law and the implications that uh, a ruling for either side might have um, going forward. So um, it's a hard thing to sort of guess where the court's going, and I try never to guess where the court's going when a decision's going to come down in the next, I don't know, uh, 60 days perhaps, Um, but
0: we shall see. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly find out uh, here in the next few weeks uh, of the, the full extent of the court sentiments about this particular question uh, but we'll leave it there uh, for now I've been very happy to be joined by uh, two gentlemen from the Gibbs Law Group, Stephen Tyndall. Steve, thanks for being on the, the show
2: uh, Thank you for having us thanks for your interest in the case
0: And Andre Mora, Andre thanks thanks again for being on
1: Thank you very much
0: Catherine Brennan is a partner with Hudson Cook LLP, practices in the space of consumer financial services, and regularly advises and represents clients providing the sorts of services at issue here. Ms. Brennan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. So at the heart of this question are a couple of different sections of the California Finance Lender's Law, a couple of sections in the California Finance Code. One of them refers to unconscionability and says it applies in, in this division Another section refers to loans over $2,500 and says that limits on those loans in terms of interest rates do not apply. So I guess, how what is your reading of those statutes? And maybe what is kind of the statutory reading put forward by the defendant here, cash Cause, as to how those statutes should be interpreted?
3: Sure, that's a great question. And um, unconscionability as a concept has existed in law in the united states for centuries and the purpose of unconscionability is to allow the court to look at the facts of a particular case and point out those facts that are particularly overreaching so if you look at the body of case law around unconscionability the facts are generally egregious so they're more than just the the negotiated terms of the agreement you often will have a borrower who is impaired in some way, or who is disadvantaged in some way. You also might occasionally have a borrower who is taking advantage of a third party or their assets, or some fiduciary relationship they have with that third party to leverage the assets of the third party to their advantage with the borrower. So it's more than just the straight letter of the contract. It's looking beyond the contract to see, well, what is the actual deal at issue here? So it's not at all surprising that the California legislature would incorporate the the concept of unconscionability to enable it to enable borrowers in that state to have the ability to say, notwithstanding the fact that the California uh, financing law says you can charge X Y Z, you know, fees, charges, interest rates. You also have this duty to ensure that the agreement is not in and of itself unconscionable. So what's at issue here is. Is what what the um, plaintiffs perceive to be as a, a conflict between unconscionability and interest. Now, I don't think that the legislature could be fairly described as having intended to adopt the concept of unconscionability to override its explicit and express grant of unlimited interest contracting authority for a certain subsection of loans in California. That makes zero sense to me. And if you look at the briefs in the case, particularly the briefs of the Attorney General, there's a litany of cases that are described as being, you know, this is the law of unconscionability. But the facts in those cases are far different than the facts here in the cash call case. They involve, as I noted, borrowers who are disadvantaged in some way, Mm -hmm. borrowers who... Um, used a um, fiduciary relationship where they had power of attorney over an elderly relative's assets, and they pledged those assets. So none of the cases cited in the brief by the Attorney General's Office are strictly based on the the interest rate. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in this case to actually read the cases that are cited because they don't stand for the proposition that the Attorney General and the defend uh, and the plaintiffs are saying they stand for.
0: So it sounds like what you're describing and is similar to the way that the statutory setup is described by cash call in its briefing as sort of with that second section you discussed, it's 22303, uh, referencing the no limit to interest rates on the $2,500 loans or above, um, that that creates sort of a, a safe harbor, notwithstanding really any other portions of the, the code there. Is that um, a fair way to describe it?
3: I wouldn't describe it as a safe harbor, I would describe it as an explicit and express statutory grant of authority. Um, And so if if you listen to the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit, I don't remember which justice posed this, but the question is, is interest rate standing alone enough to trigger an unconscionability claim under the CFL incorporating by reference the unfair competition law? The answer to that question has to be no, because otherwise there would have been no reason for the California legislature to say you can charge whatever rate of interest you want. Unconscionability must mean something else. And so the something else is what's been fleshed out in these cases, which are cited on both sides. But if uh, if you look underneath the cases, it's more than just the interest rate on the loan. There has to be other facts. Another very common scenario in an unconscionability case, and this is one of the cases cited in the attorney general's brief, is you might have someone who does not speak English, and the contract is in English, but they speak a, a different language. So there's no way they could have known what was in the agreement. Um, so this is the, in the big Sur case. The borrowers in that case, case spoke to you and know, they didn't know what they were signing. So that is the purpose of unconscionability is to get to those cases and to pull those pull those people out of their unfair and overreaching agreements and you know that is a just and fair thing because certainly no one should be subjected to an agreement that they are like severely they're severely disadvantaged in some way but that's quite simply not the case with a loan that's originated online with all of the you know disclosures provided um there's no hiding the ball. There's no bait and switch. Um and you're doing it pursuant to a license that explicitly says you can charge these rates of interest, it would it would be inconceivable to then come behind that and say, okay, even though law says you can do this, we're gonna find this to be unconscionable.
0: Maybe just to parse one one thing from from there. If as you're saying particularly high interest rate or just some, some interest rate cannot be sort of the sole determining factor that makes a loan unconscionable. Does that also mean that you shouldn't factor interest rates into that sort of broader unconscionability uh, analysis where you bring in those other factors that, that you discuss? Is that latter question not really uh, central here? Is it, is it more the former one, whether just interest rates alone do the work?
3: So I, so I think that once you have a finding of additional facts that suggests there's overreaching or taking advantage of a disadvantaged purpose person, then I think you would look to, okay, well, what are the terms of the agreement, which would include interest rate and fees, to, f- to fashion a remedy? So if you, if you read the cases that are cited, what happens is the court lays out the facts. What happens generally, obviously, this is a generalization. The court lays out the facts and then says, these are the facts of the transaction. These are the facts of the parties to the transaction. These are the circumstances of the transaction. And in light of all of that, we're going to reform this interest rate. And then they usually, well, you know, they'll cram, they'll either, you know, say it's the transaction is void altogether. They might cram it down to whatever, like, the, like, statutory rate of interest is that you know california is not like this because in california you generally need a license but in other states you can lend up to a certain rate of interest without triggering a license requirement so they they will reform the interest rate but they they don't they don't look necessarily at the interest rate as um okay and this makes it even more unconscionable like it's 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 a necessary fact to consider to consider the remedy for the damage that has been caused in the unconscionable transaction.
0: Just to sort of play out the argument that 303 creates, you know, a license to charge interest rates as one would like, you know, that is tantamount, you can say that differently to say that there really is no interest rate that is, is too high, 1,000, 10,000, you know, 100,000% interest rate on, on a loan. I mean, that would be... Legal, if not very, you know, attractive to consumers, but in in the cash call line of argument, that you know, really, there's no, there is not a limit to interest rates, right?
3: That's correct. That's correct. There's no statutory limit to interest rates. Obviously, there are, are there would be limitations because you know, at a certain point, no one's going to borrow money. <laughs> but right. but the, the statute itself says interest is as agreed to by the parties.
0: And then in, in terms of the, the, the related point that no one would really buy those loans that the market would sort of do the work um, needed to, to keep interest rates at a you know, acceptable or you know, normal, you know, not too high of a level, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the cash calls par- policy argument on, on that score? Do you think the market would be able to set the interest rates at a you know, proper amount?
3: That's a great question, and I'll talk specifically about online unsecured loans, which are the types of loans here. It's, it's, I believe, accurate to say that the market is addressing this, and with the advent of more of these like online lenders that are operating, you have seen cost to consumers drive down, and consumers have now more than ever tools that um, they might need to help improve their ability to get lower interest rate loans. Cash Call and, and other lenders that are lending at higher rates, they're filling a need in the, the market. If if this court case, if the Supreme Court comes back and says, notwithstanding the the clear statute statutory language that says interest is as agreed for the certain class of loans, we think it should be capped at X, they would be substituting their judgment for the judgment of the legislature. Um, if if there if there is a desire by the legislature to um, put a cap on interest rates, they can do so at any time. And they haven't yet. Not saying they wouldn't in the future, but you do have the market. And, and I'm sure if you look at, I think Pew has data on this uh, that shows like over time, like how rates have come down. And a lot of the online platforms that are trying to cater to kind of the great middle of consumers, they're trying to stay at like 36%. percent So. Mm-hmm there are certain borrowers who might not be eligible for that and so you know there are platforms that have sprung up to to address that subsection of the market um but you know to to the ridiculous hypothetical of like ten thousand percent i've never seen that i'm not saying it couldn't happen but i've never Mm -hmm. seen that happen
0: maybe just to start to wrap up what in terms of i guess the the impact of this case would there be um, with with really either ruling. I mean, the the specific question is not whether these loans were unconscionable, right? It's just sort of whether, as a general matter, a loan could be unconscionable simply based on its interest rates. So um, whatever the California Supreme Court comes back with, I guess wouldn't necessarily decide the question. But just in terms of what the the decision could mean for you know folks on either side um, here and, and in, in the two sort of competing spaces of consumer advocacy and uh, consumer finance uh, services, what what are the stakes of this case?
3: so if the if the Supreme Court comes back and says no, interest rate, outstanding loan could never be used to render a loan unconscionable. We're kind of a status quo. And then consumer advocates in California and elsewhere would, you know, continue to press arguments that they have to to undermine certain categories of loans. And, you know, in certain circumstances, like, that is appropriate. Like, unconscionability is a, 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 good, a good legal concept to get borrowers out of deals that are unconscionable. So, I don't think anyone either representing lenders or otherwise would argue with that. On the lender side, if the Supreme Court comes back and says, yes, interest rate standing alone can render a loan unconscionable, I think that would effectively cut off a lot of lending in California. So um, it, the, the results could be disastrous. And um, consumer advocates have put forth the number for consumer loans is 36% APR and everything over 36% APR is overreaching that you know the lenders and the entities that fund lenders, like they would be struggling to come up with like, okay, well, what is the reasonable risk of taking California? And Mm -hmm. I think you'd find a lot of people, notwithstanding the fact that California is the largest market in the country, um, would just simply exit. They wouldn't want to deal with it because why would they want to?
0: Okay, Uh, we'll we'll get an answer here in the next few weeks um, and and we'll see which way it goes. Uh, For now, we'll leave it there, Uh, Catherine Brennan. From Hudson Cook, LLP. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for July 6th, 2018. I'd like to thank one more time our three guests, Stephen Tindall and Andre Mura from Gerard Gibbs. Also, Catherine Brennan from Hudson Cook. Thanks also to you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours by taking a short true-false test on our dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And don't forget to find us and subscribe and rate and review us on the podcast app by searching Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardale. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.